You know, the Apple Watch, I don't know if you know this, but it came out nine years ago. Uh, it's already been nine years, right, in 2015. Right now, it's a bit overshadowed because of the Apple Vision Pro, right, which I want so badly, right? It's, uh, I love Min Minority Report. It's one of my favorite movies. Uh, but the Apple Watch is a crazy piece of tech, right? Um, it can track your heartbeat. It can give you updates on your sleeping pattern. Uh, it can use Apple Pay. It can do all of these different things. It's great. For many people, it's become an essential part of their lives. They keep it inside and outside of their house. They're always wearing it wherever they go. You know, there was a, an article that came out last year, and it was talking about a woman uh, in Michigan who had an Apple Watch. Uh, she had gone out to a lake with some friends, and at the lake, there was an outhouse. Now, for us city folk, right, an outhouse is different than a porta potty uh, in that it's a more per permanent uh, outside toilet. Now, what they normally do is out in the countryside, they dig out a big hole, and then they put kind of a bench or a makeshift toilet over it. As you can imagine, it's not really the best place to hang out, right? And so this woman goes into the outhouse. Now, I don't know what she was doing in there. I don't know what women do in the bathroom, but her Apple Watch fell into the toilet, into that hole. Uh, now, let's be honest, right? Uh, every one of us have dropped something in the toilet before. Uh, and it's usually okay because it's our home toilet. It's, it's pretty clean. If it's a toothbrush, we just we pick it up, we put it back in our mouth, it's fine, right? Uh, we go on with our day. But this is an outhouse. It's different, right? Now, the reason why this made news is because this woman decided that she is going to get her watch. And so what she ends up doing is she climbs down into that hole and she finds out that she cannot get back out. She is stuck in that hole with everything there. And so she ends up screaming for help and they find her and the police are called to extract her. They end up removing the entire outhouse. They strap her with some ropes and then they pull her out. As I was reading this article, I was looking for her name everywhere, right? I wanted to see what this woman looked like. I wanted to see her Instagram, her LinkedIn, something, right? Now, the reason why is not because I'm a weirdo, right? But because I wanted to see what a person with this type of passion for an Apple Watch looked like. I wanted to see what a type of person who loved Apple Watches, who desired it, who thought it was so valuable, looked like. You see, for her, this watch was not just important. It was so valuable that she was willing to go after it with everything, right? See, my church, we as people will intrinsically pursue what is valuable to us. And when we deem it as the utmost importance, when we deem it as a first priority, when we say it is the most valuable thing in our lives, then we will wade through anything to get it. Whether that's a relationship, whether that's a career, whether that is a possession, if we deem it that important, we will go after it with everything that we have. And so here's the question that I have for you. How valuable is your salvation to you? How important is your relationship to God? Is it of the utmost priority to you? 
Does the way you pursue your salvation in Jesus Christ demonstrate how valuable you proclaim it is with your mouth? Look, I am not saying that you work for your salvation. It is a gift from God given through faith in Jesus Christ. But while it is a gift, Jesus tells us that we have to put our salvation as something worth pursuing and striving towards. That we have to work, that we have to strive, that we put effort into our salvation. And so what we see is that in this passage, Jesus speaks about salvation. And he says that there are two reasons, two main reasons why salvation is so valuable to us, why we should put it as the utmost priority in our lives. The first is because it's only about him. It's only about Jesus Christ. And second is because it is urgent and it is approaching. You know, over the past few months, we've been going through the book of Luke. And while Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, someone asks him a question. It says in verse 23, Lord, will those who are saved be few? In other words, this person is asking how many people are going to be saved? Is there going to be a little amount? Is there only going to be a few of us up there? Now, why would he ask this question? Back then, there was a very clear guide to being saved. If you were born Jewish and if you followed Jewish law, you were pretty much saved. That's about it. But all of a sudden, here comes this man named Jesus. And he begins telling people something radical. That is not about what you do. It's not about who your parents are. It's about your faith in me. And Jesus continues to warn the people. You think that there's going to be a lot of people up in heaven. You think that there's going to be a multitude, millions, so many people up there. But there's actually not going to be that many. No, no, no. The door is narrow. And so this man hears all that Jesus is saying, and he asks the question, then Jesus, how many people are going to be saved? Jesus, he hears this. And instead of answering the question, he directs it back. And Jesus says, instead of thinking of how many people are going to be saved, let me ask you a question. Are you saved? Verse 24, Jesus says this, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. You see, in the Greek, that word strive is interesting because it's a word that is almost exclusively used to describe what professional athletes do. Another word that you can use for strive in the Greek is actually agony, to agonize over. It is something you put all of your effort, all of your blood, sweat, and tears into. And it's interesting because Jesus is saying that our salvation is something that we need to work towards, that we need to strive towards, that we need to put our blood, sweat, and tears into. It's kind of strange, right? Because what we know is that salvation is a gift from God. And that's the truth. 100% the Bible says that. Ephesians 2.8 says, By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift from God so that no one can boast except the Lord. See, what we believe and what is true is that the work is done. The moment that we believe in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that we are justified, forgiven, adopted. That's it. There is nothing that we can add on to. 
for us to be more saved. That becomes a trouble. We know this. Paul talks about this in all the letters, that there are people who try to work for their salvation, that they think the more they pray, the more they go to church, the more they tithe, the more they do these things, the more likely it is that they go to heaven. And yet, Paul says, no, 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 it's not through your works that you are saved. You are only saved. You are only justified. You are only forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. It is through him that you are saved. It is only faith. And that's the truth. Salvation is found only in our faith in Jesus Christ and his work. That is salvation. Jesus is not talking about a works-based salvation. However, just because it's a gift from God does not mean that we take it lightly or put it as a second priority. There's people who believe, okay, just because God gives it as a gift, because I don't have to do any work for it, I'm just going to put it as a secondary thing in my life. That is work, family, friends, salvation, food, all this other stuff. It is just one of the many things in my life. And yet Jesus is saying to us here, just because salvation is a gift given by me, you still have to put it as the first thing in your life. That you have to be pondering about it, thinking about it, centering your life around it. Salvation is that important. It should encompass everything that you are. Salvation and the words of Jesus, the Bible, are meant to be poured over, seriously considered, and if you believe it, committed to with your whole life. Jesus is speaking to the people who have one foot in the door and one foot outside, who believe in Jesus partially, but also believe that other parts are true, who believe in Jesus partially, but also want to live life to whatever they want to do, who believe in God partially, but also want to configure the gospel and who Jesus is into their own type of bubble. And he's asking this person who is asking these questions if he truly believes that he's saved, because the only way to be sure is to commit fully and completely to the Lord. You know, one of the prevailing thoughts of our generation is that there are many roads that lead to heaven that Jesus is one of many gods who can go in this direction. And look, many of us know people who are kind and thoughtful and self-sacrificial. And I've talked to so many people who say, oh, what about those people? They are so much better than so many of the so-called Christians that I see at church. And you know what I say to them? Yeah, I, I kind of see, I kind of agree with you too. That there are so many people who are outside the church, who don't know Jesus Christ, who are kind, sacrificial, who are loving, who are giving, who do all of these things. And yet just because they do this, it doesn't mean that they're going to heaven. And the only reason I say that is because my feelings for them is not the priority. The word of God is. Just because I desire for them to go to heaven, just because it makes sense to me in my mind, just because my heart goes out to them, doesn't mean that they go to heaven. My only truth, the only foundation that I have is in the word of God. I know that my heart and my desires and the things that I want will change day to day. I know that this culture is going to shift. But one thing that is certain that the Bible says is that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And that his word is sure. And that if we put our faith in him, that it doesn't matter if circumstances change. It doesn't matter if our situations go up and down. That he is the one who will steady us because he is the rock of life. He is the one. And so that's why I tell these people, I say, look, our church is not that we hate people. 
It's not that, that we don't want them to go to heaven. Of course we do. But for us, our priority is not our feelings, is not our desires, is not what makes sense. Our priority is the word of God, and we're going to follow the word of God until the very end of time. That's the reason why we are going in this direction. This is the reason why we push in this way. You see, what Jesus is saying here is that the salvation of the eternal soul should not be this casual subject for us to go back and forth with, for us to kind of shift around with our feelings, for us to kind of think about here and there. No, no, no. Jesus is saying, look, if salvation is what you truly desire, if you are truly wanting to be saved, this has to be all in. you got to put both feet in. you got to dive in. You can't have your thoughts here and your thoughts there. You can't have half your heart here and half your heart there. No, no, you got to commit all the way. We have to work towards it. We have to strive for it. We have to put our blood, sweat, and tears into our salvation here. And look, I'm not trying to point out, look, these are people outside the church. These are people inside the church. We're, we're better because, we're, no, no, no. This is something that we all have to think about. Do you truly desire a relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you really want eternal life and a hope that transcends circumstance? Then we have to think critically and really center our lives around the idea of salvation. It has to be everything for us. What's your ultimate goal? What are you striving towards? What are you working for? Are you centering your life around this one fact, around this one belief? You know, I remember watching this uh, YouTube, I guess, clip. It was a day in the life of LeBron James before one of his NBA championships, right? Everything for him in that moment is centered around the NBA championship. He won't, he won't eat anything uh, that isn't good for him because it can affect his performance for the game. He sleeps early. He makes sure not to go out with friends or do any of that stuff. He even ends his time hanging out with his kids early because he's getting prepared for that one game that is coming up. He, his workouts encompass hours of stretching and rehabbing and all of this stuff so he doesn't get hurt for that one championship game. Look, for me, I don't know how honest those things are considering he's being filmed or whatever, but considering he averaged the most points of anybody in that game, I think that it's probably pretty close. He is disciplined for why? For what reason? Because he has that one goal. For us as well, when we are working and striving and heading towards what is your one goal? When you are talking to your friends and your family, what is your goal? When you are working in your career, when you are doing these other things, everything, what is it centered around? Because I guarantee you, if it's not centered around your salvation upon your relationship with God, then it's centered around something else. And so what is that one thing? I can tell you for a fact that what Jesus tells us is that there is nothing else that will bring us satisfaction and contentment and the ultimate joy that we are looking for as Christians than centering our lives around Jesus Christ. That's it. Jesus is telling this man that this is the type of attitude that he should have towards salvation. That's why for us, we need to stop looking at other people and whether or not they're doing what's right 
There's a time and a place for that. Yes, of course. The Bible talks about that. But today in this passage, Jesus is asking each one of us, look, don't worry about the number of people who are going to heaven. Ask yourself, am I really saved? Am I really saved? Am I focusing my life upon Jesus Christ and his words alone? And if I say that I am, are my actions representing what I proclaim? You know, in uh, Jerusalem, there's this place called Hezekiah's Tunnel. Now, this tunnel was made back in the days of King Hezekiah. And it was made in order to bring water from outside the city walls. Now, because it was only made to bring water in, it's extremely narrow. It's extremely small. Because it's underground and only water passes through, it is always wet and is always cold. Now, what we see is that today, people are given tours to that place. And they're able to crawl through it if they want. Now, many people apparently give up because it's claustrophobic. They give up because it's cold and because it's dark. There's no light there. There's no way to make it bigger. There's no way that you can change the layout of it. There's no way that you can make it somehow easier for you to go through. It is what it is. That is where you have to go. If you want to go through there, then you have to conform to what it is asking you to do. You can either go through the tunnel or not. I believe that Jesus is saying something similar about salvation being a narrow door. We may not like the fact that it's narrow. We may think that it's too exclusive. But that is the door to salvation. It is narrow. Jesus made it narrow without checking with us for our ideas. He didn't ask for our suggestions about it, whether we like it or not. Jesus tells us that this is the way to salvation. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. That no one can come to the Father except through him. So for us, it's not about whether or not we like it. The only question that we have to ask ourselves is whether or not we are willing to enter into that narrow door. The other thing that Jesus mentions is that salvation is urgent and approaching. Verse 25 says this, When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. You know, this sounds similar to what Jesus already said in Luke 12, where he will come back like a thief in the night. You see, once Jesus returns, that's it. There are no other options. There's no other choices. There's no other second chances here. Once we pass from this earth, that's it. Once Jesus comes for a second returning, that's it. This opportunity for us to walk through the narrow door is going to close one day. We don't know when it's going to be, but we do know that it will happen. I know that many of us uh, love to procrastinate. I'm the first one to admit that too. But Jesus is telling us that salvation is the most dangerous matter to procrastinate about. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Once the door is closed, once that door is shut, there will be no bargaining. There will be no working out a last-minute deal. For us, we must enter on God's terms and on God's time 
or not at all. This is what it means to enter through the narrow narrow door. At the end, when we are facing judgment, I pray do not let that time be the time when you realize that you should have done something earlier. I hope that that is not the day that you realize what you could have done when you were younger, when you were here on this earth. Turn to God now. A famous theologian once said, Hell is nothing but truth known too late. Salvation is today. Salvation is now. There's a reason you are hearing this word. Please come before the Lord. Commit to him. I think this is especially important for so many of us in the church today. For a lot of us, we have been around religious stuff and religious jargon most of our lives. And because we've sat in church for so long, salvation is just another thing not the main thing. For us, we've maybe never repented of our sins. For many of us, maybe we've never turned to the Lord conscientiously, really deeply asking the Lord to forgive us. Say, God, I, I am a sinner. I don't deserve heaven. I don't deserve you, but Lord, will you save me? Many of us, and I, this was me years ago too, that we have gone so smart at playing saved. We sing the songs. We proclaim the name of Jesus. We know how to pray. And therefore, people think that we have a relationship with him. And because people think that, we begin to fool ourselves into thinking that we are saved. But the Bible says that people look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And so I need you to ask yourself that question. Are you really saved? Am I truly saved? Do I truly have a relationship with Jesus Christ? I know that I know God, but does God know me? Will I, when am I truly able to say to the Lord, God, I have a relationship with you. I desire to go before you. God, I know that I am a sinner that cannot save himself. God, would you save me? Have you prayed that prayer? Have you gone before the Lord? If you haven't, it's okay. Go before him now. Go before him today. Today is the day. Jesus is warning us. And these words may seem so kind of harsh at times, but man, I, I, as I've been reading and studying this, all I can see in the characteristics of God and characteristics of Jesus is that he is, a, he is a God of compassion. That he truly is just warning us of the pitfalls. He sees our hearts and he's asking us to consider salvation. Don't think of it lightly. Don't put one foot in and one foot out. But you have to strive for it. You have to put effort into it. You see, in verse 34, he says something interesting. He says something actually really beautiful. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? See, Jesus here, he's grieving, he's lamenting. And he's saying, like a mother weeping over her children who have rejected her and betrayed her, he is grieving because his heart goes out to the people who have betrayed and rejected him. He knows that there are people who are against him. He knows that in a few days, in a few weeks, that he is going to be crucified on the cross by the people that he's trying to save. He knows that people aren't responding to him, that people don't really understand, that people are still holding fast to the things of the world. 
So for him, instead of being angry, instead of wishing them evil, instead of plotting revenge, he cries out to them. And he says, as a mother hen desires for her children to come to him, to come to her, I desire for my children to come to me. And what we see at the end is that even in the face of rejection, that even in the face of all of this pain and all of this hurt that Jesus is facing, that he still goes up the hill, that he still goes to Calvary, and he still dies on the cross for our sins, that he takes the place for us because he is a good and compassionate and loving God so that when we put our faith in him, And that when we say Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, that he really is the only way, the only truth, and the only life that we are able to go to heaven with him. You know, there's this famous story of the wildfires in Yellowstone National Park in 1988. Park rangers were walking along the forest there during the aftermath, and they saw this tree completely burned to the ground. But next to the tree was this mother bird who was completely burnt, But strangely, she was still completely upright, standing still. One of the rangers went over and just moved the mother bird a little bit and outran three live chicks. They realized that as the fire was approaching, that the mother could have run away. But instead of flying away, she stayed. She stood still and let the fire come down upon her. You see, when Jesus was on the cross, He saw all the people who would betray him. He saw those who mocked him, those who denied him, those who abandoned him. And in the greatest act of love, in the greatest act of sacrifice, he stayed and burned to death by the judgment of God. He took what we deserved because he is a compassionate and loving God. And in this area here, in this passage, he is warning us because he loves us. And he's saying, turn back to me, turn to me. That salvation needs to encompass everything that you are. I desire you as a mother hen desires her children. Would you come to me? Church, I pray that you would reflect upon your salvation. It requires careful and thorough self-examination. So many of us are familiar with God. Many of us have parents of faith. But being in church is not enough. Have you come before the Lord as a guilty sinner, knowing that he is the only one who can save you. For us, our goodness, our righteousness, our faithfulness is not what God is asking for. He is asking for our obedience. Will you enter through the narrow door on his terms, in his timing? I pray that today will be the day that you turn to him. I pray that today is the day that you rededicate your life to him. I pray that today is the day that if you have been back and forth, that if your foot has been inside and outside, that today would be the day that you commit your whole life to him, that you would strive, that you would work, that you would put all effort into your relationship with Jesus Christ because he desires you and he loves you. If you have been back and forth with him, if you think that, man, it's been too late, man, I don't know if I can do this, I have good news for you because in verse 30, he says the first will be last and the last will be first. He is talking to you today. That if you have been far away from the Lord, if you have been someone who has been gone from the Lord, that today is the day he is asking you to come back and that he will accept you with open arms. 
So let today be the day of salvation. Amen? Yeah, let's pray.